Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, January 26, 2023. U.S. House debating a bill that would prohibit oil to be released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for non-emergency reasons unless there's a plan in place to increase oil and gas production on federal lands. Commerce Department says the U.S. economy grew at a solid 2.9% annualized rate during the final three months of 2022. President Joe Biden saying at a union training school in Virginia today that GDP number shows his economic plans are working. And he contrasted that to policies from the House Republican majority. Over 70 House and Senate Democrats sending a letter to the president about immigration calling on him not to implement his plans to limit access and eligibility for asylum. Senate Intelligence Committee Democrats and Republicans not happy with the Biden administration's refusal to give them the classified documents taken from the possession of current President Biden and former President Trump so that they, the senators, can do their own national security damage assessment. And Republican National Committee about to elect a chair. We'll talk with political reporter Meredith McGraw about the race between incumbent chair Ronna McDaniel and a couple of challengers. Now to the U.S. House and the bill that would prohibit oil release from the SPR, Strategic Petroleum Reserve, unless the government approves a plan to increase domestic oil and gas production on federal lands of a like amount. Political's power switch column writing that the bill is a rebuke of President Joe Biden, who sold off a whopping 40 percent of the underground stockpile in a bid to lower gasoline prices. House debate beginning with Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican from Washington State, chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee. This bill today will help ensure this vital American energy asset and American security interests will not be drained away for non-emergency political purposes. This bill is about restoring America's energy security. It provides a path towards making energy more affordable for Americans who are looking to us to help ease the pain at the pump. H.R. 21 does this by preserving the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for its vital and central purpose to provide the oil supplies Americans need during true emergencies. Emergencies like supply disruptions that threaten the nation's economy or the loss of oil production due to hurricanes and other disasters. But simply, under this bill, if an administration chooses to use the reserve for non-emergency political purposes, it will first have to develop a plan that, that an equal amount would be reinstated from American energy resources. The SBR should be used as a tool of last resort. This is sensible energy policy. It is also urgent policy. At present, the the SPR's ability to protect Americans has been put at risk. More than 250 million barrels of oil, approximately 40% of the reserve, has been drawn down in less than two years. More than all the former presidents in history combined. All to cover up historically high gas prices in an election year. This is irresponsible. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, Republican from Washington State, chair of the Energy and Commerce Committee, debating on the House floor. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created in response to the Arab oil embargo of 1973. The Energy Department's website has this. The federally owned oil stocks are stored in huge underground salt caverns at four sites along the coastline of the Gulf of Mexico. 
The sheer size of the SPR, authorized storage capacity of 714 million barrels, makes it a significant deterrent to oil import cutoffs and a key tool in foreign policy. Back to the House floor, opposing today's bill, Congressman Raul Grijalva, Democrat from Arizona, the ranking member on the Natural Resources Committee. Right now, oil and gas companies have about 9,000 approved but unused permits across 26 million acres of public land. Right now, offshore, they have 2,000 active leases covering 12 million acres, three-quarters of which aren't being used. The bill asks us to give them even more land, an area three times the size of California, or more than 300 million additional acres. Big oil has, all, has more public land than they can use. They could expand production today if they really wanted to. Instead, they lobby, lobby Congress to even, even open up more lands for, to extraction, to lower environmental standards, and to give them more taxpayer-funded taxpayer subsidies. And in the process, lock out, lock out and pu- uh, public land and public assets from other essential uses that would contribute to the American people and contribute to the, the, the mitigation and remediation and the climate action that is required around the issue of climate and the climate crisis. To add insult to inju- injury, this bill would actually make it harder to help everyday Americans. It would prevent the president's ability to keep down gas prices. Last year, President Biden took decisive action, allowing releases from the reserve to lower the prices at the pump. Under this bill, if the president needed to act again to keep prices low, he'd first have to pay off big oil by opening up our public lands. This bill does not protect American people, and it certainly doesn't protect our climate or environment. Congressman Raul Grajalva, Democrat from Arizona, ranking member on the Natural Resources Committee, today on the House floor as the House moved towards final passage of this bill. President Biden has issued a veto threat, writing the bill would significantly weaken a critical energy security tool, resulting in more oil supply shortages and higher gas prices for working families. And one more note about the House debate. It was brought up under a modified open rule roll call article explaining the process allows Republicans and Democrats to offer amendments to the bill as long as they are submitted by a deadline. And it's the first time the House has considered a bill under this method in nearly seven years. The Commerce Department saying today the U.S. economy grew in the fourth quarter of 2022, that's October through December, by a 2.9 percent annualized rate, strong, but down a bit from the 3.2 percent gross domestic product or GDP growth in the third quarter. Associated Press reports that the fourth quarter expansion comes despite the pressure of high interest rates and widespread fears of a looming recession. President Joe Biden talking about the economy and his economic agenda, comparing that to the new House Republican majority during a visit today to Springfield, Virginia, and the Steamfitters Local 602 United Association Mechanical Trade School. Just this morning, we got some very good news about the American economy. Every three months, the economic outlook of America is laid out on an official report, a government report, that uh, on the state of the economy. It came out today, this morning, and I'm not sure, and I mean this sincerely, the news could have been any better. Economic growth is up 
stronger than expert expected at 2.9 percent. We're growing. Jobs. Jobs are the highest in American number and the highest in American history. And wages are up. And they're growing faster than inflation. Over the past six months, inflation has gone down every month. And God willing, we'll continue to do that. Manufacturing jobs continue to go up stronger than any time in the last 40 years. And I don't think it's unfair to say that this is all evidence that the Biden economic plan, because you all, is actually working. It's working. It really is. And there's no question. By the way, I, if my mother were here, she would have had me say at the outset, I apologize for my back when I'm speaking to you all. I'm sorry. But uh, look, uh, we're moving in the right direction. Now we've got to protect those gains. We've got to protect those gains that our policies have generated. Protect them from the MAGA Republicans in the House of Representatives who are threatening to destroy this progress. Look, you know, this ain't your father's Republican Party. This is a different breed of cat, as they say. You know, it's hard as it is to believe. They want to pass legislation to do the following things. I've been saying this. No one believed it until they start to introduce this stuff. They want to raise your gas prices. They want to cut taxes for billionaires who pay virtually only 3% of their income now. 3% they pay it. You know, a, a babysitter pays more than that. And we, they want to impose a third. This one I love. They want to impose a 30% national sales tax on everything from food, clothing, school supplies, housing, cars, a whole deal, 30%. No, you think I'm joking. What I, if, I did, if they didn't see, if, you didn't, if I didn't see it, I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it. And folks, the reason they want to do that, they want to eliminate the, 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 the income tax system. Because guess what? That's the only way that millionaires and billionaires have to pay any taxes. But guess what happened to all y'all if, in fact, 30% sales tax on everything you buy, from eggs to automobiles? Not a joke. And one more, I've been saying this during the last campaign, the off-year campaign. Doug knows. Look, here's the deal. You got to cut your social, they want to cut your social security and Medicare. No, this is the God's truth. It's almost unbelievable. And beyond that, they're actually threatening to have us default on the American debt, a debt that's been accumulated over 230 years, okay? And the interest on that debt, we've never, ever done that. So we have a, rhetor I have a rhetorical question. What in God's name would the Americans give up the progress we've made for the chaos they're suggesting? President Joe Biden today in Springfield, Virginia, at the Steamfitters Union local House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, tweeting in response to the speech, if President Biden is so eager to speak on the economy, then he should set a date to discuss a responsible debt ceiling increase. We must finally address Washington's irresponsible government spending if we want to put America on a better fiscal path. Wall Street today, the Dow up 205, Nasdaq up 199, S&P up 44. Story from the New York Times, more than 70 Democrats in the House and the Senate urged President Biden on Thursday to reconsider his policies that limit access to asylum as a way to manage illegal migration at the southern border. We must encourage your administration to stand by your commitment to restore and protect the rights of asylum seekers and refugees, the lawmakers wrote in a letter, echoing pledges Mr. Biden made during the 2020 campaign. 
Article continues restrictions put in place by the Trump administration, including a pandemic-era public health measure known as Title 42, have drastically reduced migrants' access to asylum at the southern border. The Biden administration announced this month it would expand its use of Title 42 to immediately expel migrants from certain countries who had previously been allowed to stay in the United States temporarily and apply for asylum. Well, some of the letter signers holding a news conference today outside the U.S. Capitol building in Washington, including Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York. This is what makes us different, is that, thank you so much, is that we are willing to hold administrations accountable for the rights of immigrants and immigrant families, regardless of, uh, of, of party or allegiance. Right is right, and our main allegiance is to the families, uh, immigrants and and U.S. citizen families of the United States. Um, so thank you to our co-leads here, Senators Menendez, Padilla, Lujan, and Booker, and Representatives Casar and Grijalva uh, for co-leading on this, as well as, as our members here joining as uh, 77 members total of the House and Senate, additionally who have signed on to our letter, up to 80, uh, as Senator Menendez had, had indicated. Last year, President Biden promised to end Title 42. Instead, he is now expanding restrictions on asylum seekers. But the right to seek asylum is enshrined in domestic and international law. And the United States is a shining example. And and we have sought and aspired to be an example to uphold international law. Instead, this administration is making it effectively impossible to seek refuge at our border. The courts rightly rejected the Trump administration's attempt to categorically end asylum. President Biden should listen to the courts and human rights activists and reverse course. There can be no confusing the Biden administration's immigration policy with the Trump administration's, but doing better than Trump doesn't mean it shouldn't be the bar. Thousands of lives are being put in real danger every day. There have been more than 10,000 violent attacks on people at our border, including kidnappings, serious assaults, and deaths against individuals who were expelled due to Title 42 since the beginning of the Biden administration. The Biden administration's new policies only make it more difficult for the most vulnerable to legally access the United States. We are confident that there is a better way forward. And this is a sentiment not just held by progressive members, but by 77 Democrats in the House and Senate across the ideological spectrum. We are ready to work with the president to ensure that we have a safe, humane border that upholds the right to asylum without recreating unjust policies of past administrations. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, at a news conference with other House and Senate Democrats who signed that letter to President Biden urging changes in the migrant asylum policy news conference on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol building. More from the New York Times article on this. The top Democrats in the House and the Senate, however, did not sign the letter, exposing the divide on immigration within the president's party at a time when the Republican-led House is also split on how to address the record level of illegal migration at the southern border. Hearings on immigration before Republican-controlled House committees will be starting soon. And today on the House floor, Congressman Ben Klein, Republican from Virginia, talking about that. Madam Speaker, another month and another record as the crisis at our southern border has gotten worse. Under President Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas Watch, 
The federal government has completely ceded control of our border to Mexican drug cartels. Yet time and time again, Secretary Mayorkas has repeatedly claimed that the border is secure. Well, the facts tell a different story. Late last Friday, CPB reported that December 2022 had the highest number of illegal crossings at our southern border ever recorded. Over 251,000 illegal migrant encounters in just one month. In fiscal year 22, we saw a record-breaking 98 people on the terrorist watch list attempt to cross the border. Since October, we're already on track to break that number, with 38 people caught trying to illegally come into our interior of our country. How many more suspected terrorists have to cross over the border for this administration to take the crisis seriously? CPB seized over 9,000 pounds of deadly fentanyl that the cartels attempted to smuggle across our border. That's enough to kill over 2 billion innocent lives. Madam Speaker, it's far past time that we hold the Biden administration accountable for its complete dereliction of duty to secure our borders. That's why I'm glad that next week, Chairman Jordan and the House Judiciary Committee will be holding the first of many hearings on this crisis. Secretary Mayorkas has completely abused his authority and ignored the United States immigration laws. Questions are coming, and I hope the Secretary clears his calendar, because we have a lot, and I look forward to getting answers to those questions. Congressman Ben Klein, Republican from Virginia, today on the House floor. And Congressman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio, chair of the Judiciary Committee, tweeting on Wednesday that that hearing titled, officially titled, The Biden Border Crisis Part 1 will take place Wednesday, February 1st. And Congressman Jordan adding the caption, ready to get to work. C-SPAN Networks will be covering it. On the subject of immigration, President Biden today extending a program called Deferred Enforced Departure to let certain residents of Hong Kong stay in the U.S. The protections were put in place in August 2021 as China passed laws restricting human rights and freedoms in Hong Kong. The protections due to expire February 5th and President Biden extending them now for an additional 24 months. As the new Congress gets underway, the House Republican majority and Democratic minority have already disagreed on several issues, and many more are likely. The House Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, today asked at a news conference about his working relationship with the Republican House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. A couple weeks into this Congress now, how is your relationship with the Speaker developing? I think I read this morning you guys are texting about now. No, we've had a very um, positive, forward-looking relationship, and... You know, I hope and expect that that will continue. And we're going to continue to try and find common ground whenever and wherever possible. And it is important, I think, uh, for there to be consistent communication between House Democrats and House Republicans at every level. Uh, And that consistent communication has been robust uh, as between Speaker McCarthy and myself. We'll always, as he said publicly and I've said publicly, um, try to find opportunities to partner, but we're going to agree to disagree and strongly disagree on several issues, as we have with respect to the Intel Committee assignments. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to find common ground, it's my view, whenever and wherever possible, when we can make a meaningful difference for the American people. By the way. That's what Speaker Pelosi has always done. 
That's what Leader Schumer has always done. President Biden certainly has always done that, which is why many of our successful legislative accomplishments, gun safety legislation for the first time in American history, the Respect for Marriage Act, the Chips and Science Act, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, they were all bipartisan, mostly in the Senate, but a handful of Republicans supporting our efforts in the House as well. So we have a track record that demonstrates our willingness to find common ground. And if I can be part of extending that track record, having a working relationship with Speaker McCarthy, I think that's the responsible thing to do for the American people. Congressman Akeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, the minority leader, at a news conference today. This is Washington Today. Some updates on the war in Ukraine. From Associated Press, Russian forces fired another rash of missiles and self-exploding drones in nearly a dozen provinces of Ukraine early Thursday, causing the first attack-related deaths of the year in Kyiv and killing at least 11 people in all. And this from Reuters. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov responding to yesterday's news that the U.S. and Germany are sending their top battle tanks to Ukraine saying there are constant statements from European capitals and Washington that the sending of various weapon systems to Ukraine, including tanks, in no way signifies the involvement of these countries or the alliance in hostilities in Ukraine. We categorically disagree with this. And in Moscow, everything that the alliance and the capitals I mentioned are doing is seen as direct involvement in the conflict. We see that this is growing. Today, officials from the U.S. State Department and Defense Department testifying on Capitol Hill before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about the war. Here is Senator Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, questioning Undersecretary of State Victoria Nuland about USAID and the overall strategy. Undersecretary Nuland, I'm curious about uh, how much information we've really been able to, to share with the public with regard to the reasoning behind our funding uh, for the, the the Ukrainians in this war with Russia, uh, many of us have the opportunity to, to to get the classified discussions where we can be pretty frank about what's going on. I, I think there's a lot of folks out there that have not had the opportunity that we've had, and they will challenge whether or not we've been appropriate or or uh, reasonable in our support, continued support for Ukraine in this particular instance. Uh, Would it be fair to say in in, in this unclassified uh, discussion that the administration's policy uh, is, or the position is, that Ukraine can win this war against uh, Russian aggression? Senator, I think a year ago, none of us would have believed that we would be sitting here and Ukraine would still be standing as she is. That said, a third of her territory, as you know, is now held by Russia uh, illegally. So if we didn't think that this investment could push back Putin and turn back this uh, tactic uh, that is lawless and creates a world that none of us wants our children to live in, that you can just take a piece of your neighbor's property by force, and that's okay. Um, we would be not be asking you, we would not be asking the American people for this support. And so we've seen the gains that the Ukrainians were able to make through September. We are now, they want to push again very hard as the spring comes. And that is why you see these new forms of equipment that will help them, we believe, to push Russia back further this spring. 
So in terms of the administration's position, uh, our goal is one of on the ground seeing Ukraine regain lost land that uh, Russia has taken in, in, uh, in previous offensive moves. Is, is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement. So longer term, uh, would it be the position that we continue to fund Ukraine as long as Russia has those ill-gotten gains in their possession? Uh, Senator, I think we're going to have to ensure that Ukraine has the defenses not only to continue to try to push Russia back, but to ensure that Putin can't reconstitute and come back. So, you know, one scenario one, one could see, and one that some think that the Russians favor, is a, a pause in this war now on these lines. Because that would give Putin time to rest and refit and rebuild his own military. And as we saw between 2014 and 2022, he will just be back and he will push further and he will come not just for Ukraine but for other, ter other countries around him. So it, it, that's why it has to end here. It, it may be semantics, but what we're really talking about is, is whether or not Ukraine can win this, this episode, this war. And part of what you're telling me is, is within the administration, it is a matter of taking back land from Russia and putting them in a position to where they will not be able to come back and attack again. Uh, and, and that suggests to me that, that we really do believe that Ukraine can win this war. Is that a fair statement? Or I'm trying to, to get you to either say, yes, we believe Ukraine can win the war, or we're not really making that statement. Do we believe that Ukraine can win the war? We believe that Ukraine can regain the sovereignty to survive and thrive, and it can push Russia back further, yes. Does that mean they win the war? Ukraine will define what winning is, right? But yes, I believe so. Victoria Newland is Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, questioned by Senator Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, at today's Foreign Relations Committee hearing. Also included other State Department and Pentagon officials. Victoria Newland also telling the committee the U.S. has in Kiev, Ukraine this week consultants alongside with the World Bank and the private firm Deloitte to ensure that no aid or weapons are diverted, in her words. Washington Today continues in a moment. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. Story at CNN.com, the National Archives is formally asking former presidents and vice presidents to recheck their personal records for any classified documents or other presidential records in the wake of classified documents discovered in the homes of former President Donald Trump, former Vice President Mike Pence, and President Joe Biden over the last year. The archives sent a letter Thursday to representatives of former presidents and vice presidents from the last six presidential administrations covered by the Presidential Records Act, from former President Ronald Reagan's White House to the present. That from CNN. Reporters have been asking Attorney General Merrick Garland questions about the special counsel investigations in the case of the Donald Trump and Joe Biden classified documents. And in the case of the Mike Pence classified documents, whether a special counsel should be appointed. And the attorney general has been saying generally he cannot comment. Today, there was a question that did get an answer. With regard to the Trump and Biden special counsels, 
Are you considering uh, an effort to coordinate the work of these two special counsels, such as maybe their, their timeline or, or their final reports, so the public can have somewhat of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison at the end of this? Or do you view that as interference in the special counsel's work? Well, I don't want to talk about the particulars of, uh, of, of investigations, and particularly not a special counsel investigation. Say, as a general matter, the people we choose for special counsel are experienced prosecutors with experience in the Justice Department. They know how the Justice Department works. They know what the department's practices are. And I'm fully confident uh, that they will uh, resolve these matters one way uh, or the other in the highest traditions of the department. Attorney General Merrick Garland with reporters. It was a news conference mostly on an unrelated topic. Joining him was the FBI Director Christopher Wray, who was asked about the laws governing classified documents. As somebody who deals with classified information every day, without asking you to comment on any, any pending matter, are you concerned that the system for accounting for classified information in the executive branch may be broken? Obviously, I can't comment on any specific investigation, uh, but we have uh, had for quite a number of years any number of mishandling investigations. Uh, that is, a, unfortunately, a regular part uh, of our counterintelligence divisions uh, and counterintelligence programs work. Uh, and, and people need to be uh, conscious of the rules regarding classified information and appropriate handling of them. It's, those rules are there for a reason. FBI Director Christopher Wray at the Justice Department. ABC News reports that members of the Senate Intelligence Committee emerged outraged from a two-hour secure briefing with the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, threatening to grind the chamber's business to a halt if the Biden administration does not provide access to the classified documents seized from the current president and former President Donald Trump. Senators in both parties have claimed the administration is refusing to let them see the materials, even blocking lawmakers with the highest security clearance, like Senate Intelligence Committee members. While the special counsel probes are ongoing over how Joe Biden and Donald Trump handled the classified records while out of office. That from ABC News. Senator Mark Warner, Democrat from Virginia, chairs the Intelligence Committee. Every member of the committee, regardless of Democrat or Republican, were unanimous in that this position, that we are left in limbo until somehow a special counsel designates that it's okay for us to get briefed is not going to stand. And all things will be on the table to try to make sure that doesn't happen, number one. Number two, you know, we pointed out that um, many times Senator Burr and I briefed you in the past. There was special counsel involved there, and our committee got those briefings, even in certain cases because we had the trust of the intelligence community, had um, access to even law intelligence, but it was handled appropriately. And again, our goal is to make sure that we make that intelligence assessment of whether our nation's security has been compromised. And three has been, I think you heard from both Senator Rubio and I yesterday, kind of our responses when it came, um, came about that there were documents now discovered with former Vice President Pence. We got a broken system and we got to fix this for all folks leaving government, and for those inside government, on how they deal with documents. I think the whole question is there's a lot of members who've worked on classification. You know, this has been kind of a problem that's been bubbling for some time. It is now playing out real time, and um, our committee's going to take it up. And there was, again, broad agreement that this needs to be addressed. 
Senator Mark Warner, Intelligence Committee Chair, after a closed-door briefing with the Director of National Intelligence, Avril Haines, speaking Wednesday night alongside the committee's vice chair, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida. After those two left, another member of the committee coming up, Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, who said that if he and the others cannot see those classified documents that were in the possession of Joe Biden and Donald Trump, then he will not allow quick passage of President Biden's nominations. What I've consistently heard, what other senators have consistently heard, is they cannot provide these documents while there are special counsels investigating both President Biden and President Trump, which is a farce. I was on the Intelligence Committee when we reviewed Russia's interference in our election processes in 2016. We had had access to many sensitive documents related to that investigation. At the same time, Bob Mueller and his special counsel's office was investigating the Russia collusion hoax. There's no reason that standards shouldn't apply now to both the documents present at President Trump's residence and President Biden's residence and office. Just to be clear, when you say pain, are you talking about blocking all nominees? Is that what you're planning prepared. I'm prepared to refuse consent or to fast track any nominee for any department or agency and to take every step I can on every committee on which I serve to impose consequences on the administration until they provide these documents for the Congress to make our own informed judgment about the risk to national security, if any, of these documents being present outside of secure facilities. Several other senators, I suspect, are going to take the same view. I suspect the Republican majority in the House will as well. There's a simple solution to this. The administration should stop stonewalling the Congress and provide these documents to it. Senator Tom Cotton, Republican from Arkansas, member of the Intelligence Committee, with reporters on Capitol Hill Wednesday night after that closed-door briefing with the Director of National Intelligence. Politico writes that Senator Cotton's stance threatens to shut down an already slow-moving Senate. If he follows through on his objection, it will mean the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will have to burn multiple days of valuable floor time to set up nominee votes. Republican National Committee winter meeting is being held this week in Dana Point, California. And on Friday, the RNC membership will elect officers, including a chair. The current chair, Ronna McDaniel, is running for a fourth term, being challenged by Harmeet Dillon, RNC member from California, and Mike Lindell, the founder and CEO of the company MyPillow. Harmeet Dillon explained on Fox News this past Sunday why she's running. In 10 states now, there's been a vote of either no confidence in the current chair or an endorsement of me. Two states endorsed me over the weekend, Nebraska and Washington GOP. And so I think the message there is very clear. But like I've said before, uh, you know, a lot of people are in the Republican National Committee for, for, you know, friendship reasons, social reasons, prestige reasons, clout reasons. And, you know, if they think that all of those will be furthered by the status quo, then that's why they're doing it. But what I can tell you of all the Americans who contact me, Republicans and others alike, Americans are suffering. They're feeling very uncomfortable with the state of our country and our party. And they're really, really eager for some change. And I provide that change and a vision of how we're going to win in 2024, together with Mitch McConnell, together with Kevin McCarthy. Party leaders have to work together. And so this is not about our personal feelings, our personal preferences, our comfort zone. It's about doing what's right for the people who elected us to these mm-hmm. positions. Harmeet Dillon, candidate for Republican National Committee chair on Fox News last Sunday. The incumbent RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, running for re-election, was interviewed by Steve Bannon on Real America's Voice Channel last Friday. 
and the top one or two lies, uh, you know, about you would be what? Well, I think just the beginning of uh, that, the RNC picks the candidates and picks the plays. I mean, we don't do that. We're not doing the strategy. I think that's disingenuous. I think a lot of the stuff about the spending has been has been misinterpreted and put out intentionally in a dishonest way. But again, Steve, I'm focused on how do we bring people together and how do we get our party unified to win in 2024. And that's the campaign I'm running. So I'm not going to worry about those things. Um, that's that's the campaign that, that's being run on the other side. I'm focusing on how do we unite around what we need to defeat, which are the Democrats and Biden and the terrible, disastrous policies coming from his administration. RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel on Real America's Voice Network on January 20th. Tomorrow, she's up for another term, but the race is competitive. And joining us now to talk about it is Meredith McGraw, National Political Correspondent with Politico. Thank you very much. What is the latest on this campaign for RNC chair? Well, tomorrow morning, the RNC's 168 members are going to be picking their next chair. And this is an election that happens every few years. Um, This is an annual meeting that occurs. This time it's out in Dana Point, California. And the race for chair has become incredibly heated and competitive in the last few months. And that's because current chairwoman Ronna McDaniel has been challenged by Harmeet Dillon. She is a constitutional lawyer based in California and an RNC committee member out there. And she's really tried to take on McDaniel um, in the last few months. And while it does seem like McDaniel still has a sizable lead, according to people who are vote counting and, and whipping votes there, This is a secret ballot, so we won't really know the answer until tomorrow afternoon when a winner is actually declared. What about Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow? Yes, Mike Lindell is still in the mix there, but really this is between uh, Dylan and, and McDaniel, who have each scrambled to show off support from all sorts of corners of the party. One of the things that just happened today was that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said in an interview with conservative commentator Charlie Kirk that he was supportive of Harmeet Dillon and some of the changes that she has suggested. Now, I wouldn't go as far to say it was an outright endorsement, but it really did uh, cause a a last-minute scramble here to this contentious race with less than 24 hours to go. What issues are at play in in this race? What the reforms are being proposed. McDaniel has said that this is a time when the party needs steady leadership. And she's pointed to her ability to um, bridge different parts of the party and her ability to do some pretty serious fundraising. Um, she raised millions while she was RNC chairwoman and, you know, has support of a, a lot of the very deep pocketed Republican donors. Um, for all of that. But people have been skeptical of her time as chairwoman, saying that in the past three election cycles, it's been disappointing for Republicans, especially in the 2022 election cycle, when it seems like it was the perfect environment for Republicans um, in terms of President Joe Biden's polling and some of the issues that were at play with the economy. And they really felt like the Republicans underperformed, and maybe it's time to get some fresh thinking 
and get some fresh voices in the party. And that's something that Dylan has called for herself. She's really made a point of calling out the so-called consultant class in Washington, D.C. that she says runs the RNC. But I do think it's important to note, too, that Dylan herself, as a lawyer, uh, her own firm has benefited from the RNC by um, representing them in some cases. And she served as one of Donald Trump's January 6th lawyers, too. We're talking with Meredith McGraw from Politico. Ronald McDaniel has been been the RNC chair since 2017. Uh, Before that, there was Ryan Priebus, who was there for about, I think, six years. But going back before that, it was common for RNC chairs to serve two or four years. Has anything changed um, it is unusual. I think it was it was surprising that McDaniel wanted to run again. Um, there were questions about whether she actually would. Um, and one of the things that's come up in interviews with RNC members who are supportive of McDaniel is that they think this 2024 presidential primary could get uh, really uh, crazy and contentious with perhaps not only former President Donald Trump stepping in the arena, but also other people like DeSantis or potentially former Vice President President Mike Pence and others, and that the party really is at this uh, inflection point where it's going through almost an identity crisis, trying to figure out what the Republican Party is and what they stand for, and that they want somebody like McDaniel, who's been there, to helm the ship. But at the same time, uh, Dylan's supporters would make the case against that, saying, you know, it, it is going to be a contentious time. Um, we need somebody that um, is able to demonstrate that they'll be neutral um, in the 2024 primary. And so they've um, supported her as, as for one of those reasons. Meredith McGraw, a national political correspondent with Politico. Her story's at Politico.com. And on Twitter, it's at Meredith McGraw. Thank you very much. Thank you. And one paragraph from that political story with Meredith McGraw. Jonathan Barnett, a RNC committee member from Arkansas, supporting Harmy Dillon, saying, you've got anti-Trump people that are for Rana, and you've got anti-Trump people for Harmeet. It's just the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It's all over the map. And on Friday, you can watch and listen to the RNC Winter Meeting and the election of the RNC Chair starting at 1 p.m. Eastern on C-SPAN 2 television. It'll also be streamed at cspan.org, and you can follow it on the C-SPAN Now mobile app. The FBI says it secretly infiltrated, disrupted, and took down the major cybercriminal ransomware group known as Hive that had extorted schools, hospitals, and critical infrastructure around the world for about $100 million dollars. Attorney General Merrick Garland leading today's news conference at the Justice Department. We are here to announce that last night, the Justice Department dismantled an international ransomware network responsible for extorting and attempting to extort hundreds of millions of dollars from victims in the United States and around the world. Known as the Hive Ransomware Group, this network targeted more than 1,500 victims around the world since June of 2021. In ransomware attacks, transnational cybercriminals use malicious software to hold digital systems hostage and demand a ransom. Hive ransomware affiliates employed a double extortion model. First, they infiltrated a victim's system and stole sensitive data. 
Next, the affiliates deployed malicious software, encrypting the victim's system, rendering it unusable. And finally, they demanded a ransom payment in exchange for a system decryption key and a promise not to publish any stolen data. Hive affiliates targeted critical infrastructure and some of our nation's most important industries. In one instance, in August 2021, Hive affiliates deployed ransomware on computers owned by a Midwest hospital. At a time when COVID-19 was surging in communities around the world, the Hive ransomware attack prevented the hospital from accepting any new patients. The hospital was also forced to rely on paper copies of patient information. It was only able to recover its data after it paid a ransom. Hive's most recent victim in the Central District of California was attacked on or about December 30th of last year. Its most recent victim in the Central District of Florida was attacked around 15 days ago. In its first year of operation, Hive extorted over $100 million in ransom payments from its victims. The Attorney General Merrick Garland at today's Justice Department news conference also included the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, who added that when the government hackers broke into Hive's network to conduct surveillance to make their case, they were able to alert hundreds of victims in advance so they could take steps to protect their systems. Lisa Monaco said, using lawful means, we hacked the hackers. We turned the tables on Hive. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word, to get the stories Washington is talking about sent to your inbox every day. You can subscribe at c-span.org forward slash connect. Have a good night.